evening. We come then to the sermon tonight, the purpose of the sacraments. And the reason, of course, is because we continue in our study of the Heidelberg Catechism. And before we get to question 67, I would like to just back up again to question 65. This is where we began speaking about the sacraments. And just to give us kind of this organizing principle, we see in question 65 that the Catechism has said uh, has asked the question, it is by faith alone that we share in Christ and all his benefits. Where then does that faith come from? So let's remember the original question that got us started in this study. Where does that faith come from? That's kind of the question that we want to keep in our minds. And the answer given us in question 65 was, the Holy Spirit works it in our hearts. Remember that was how faith is planted. That's how we get faith in the first place. The Holy Spirit works it in our hearts. And then you'll remember I made a slight adjustment to the catechism because the catechism then says, by the preaching of the Holy Gospel, and I want you to understand that as, and it grows, our faith grows or increases by the preaching of the Holy Gospel and confirms it by the use of the Holy Sacraments. So we had talked some, some time ago about how the Holy Spirit works faith in the hearts of his people. And he does that purely uh, in a... In a uh, one-sided work of the Spirit of God in the heart of the soul. That is not something that the person contributes to in any way, shape, or form. Remember, the, the picture given us in the New Testament is birth. That faith is worked in our hearts in the same way that a person is born. Right? You do not contribute to your own birth. You are just born. And so in that way, faith is worked in our hearts by the Holy Spirit of God in a secret, in a, a way that is not experienced or felt by us, but of course that has very dramatic effects in our life. And those certainly are experienced because now a great change comes in the life of that person when the Spirit of God works faith in the heart. We have talked considerably then about the person and work of Christ, which again is the preaching of the Holy Gospel, which causes our faith to grow. But tonight, or, uh, tonight, we're not simply going to consider the preaching of the gospel, but also now to move on to confirms it by the use of the holy sacraments. And the question that we have set before us is question 67 and 68. Are both the word and the sacraments then intended to focus our faith on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross as the only ground of our salvation? Now, again, that is kind of piggyback, piggybacking on the previous question because you'll remember that the previous question, question 66, said that sacraments are visible, holy signs and seals. They were instituted by God so that by our use of them, he might make us understand more clearly the promise of the gospel. Remember, the promise of the gospel comes to us in the preaching. We hear it. We understand it. But now God confirms it to us by this picture he confirms it. He seals the promise to us. Not so different from when a husband pledges his love to his wife at the altar, but then he seals it. He confirms it by putting that ring on the finger, right? And that ring becomes a visible sign of the husband's love and, of course, the reverse. The wife also pledges her love and devotion to her husband by means of that visible sign, which is that ring. So now the question 67 is asking, are both the word, that is the preaching of the word, 
are both the word and the sacraments then intended to focus our faith on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross as the only ground of our salvation? And the question is, yes, indeed. I'm sorry, the answer is, yes, indeed. The Holy Spirit teaches us in the gospel and confirms by the holy sacraments that our entire salvation rests on Christ's one sacrifice for us on the cross. And question 68, defining for us two sacraments, baptism and the Holy Supper. So children, on your notes there, you see that it says faith is born by the Holy Spirit. So you can write Holy Spirit in that blank there. And faith grows by the preaching of the word. And faith is confirmed by the sacraments. Now, my friends, in the question, we are told, are both the word and the sacraments intended to focus our faith? And the answer is given us, the Holy Spirit teaches us in the gospel and confirms. So you have two things there. The teaching and preaching in the gospel, or of the gospel, and the confirming by the sacraments. And that's why the first point that I want to consider with you tonight is that the preaching of the word of God is intended to focus our faith on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That in the first place. And that is in our question and answer, right? The Holy Spirit teaches us in the gospel that our entire salvation rests on Christ's one sacrifice for us on the cross. And I had already mentioned that this morning, that we want in this pulpit congregation to be a Christ-centered pulpit. Now, what does that mean? In my days as a preacher, going from church to church, I found almost as many definitions of Christ-centered preaching as, as people I met. It seems that uh, people kind of naturally tend to think of the preaching I like, that must be Christ-centered preaching. And, and that's probably something that I'm guilty of and that most of us are guilty of. So it behooves us then to know, what does it mean to preach Christ? Now, the first thing we can say is that preaching Christ does not mean just preaching sermons that focus on Jesus. As, as when we preach a sermon on the death of Christ, or on the resurrection of Christ, or on the ascension of Christ. We had a good deal of that preaching, didn't we, in the Heidelberg Catechism some, some weeks back. Now, certainly Christ-centered preaching would include that, but it's not limited to that, isn't it? Because we know that Christ also is in the Old Testament, even though Christ was not yet alive, even though he had not yet said a word, that we can find Christ even in the preaching of the Old Testament. Right? The most obvious is uh, this morning when we read Isaiah 53, I don't think any of us missed the Lord Jesus Christ in that chapter. And when I opened the call to worship and said that the Father's hand is upon the man of his right hand, I don't think any of us missed the reference there to the Lord Jesus Christ by way of looking forward to him. So preaching Christ is not just preaching that has as its su subject or topic Jesus. It's broader than that. And when we speak about preaching Christ, positively, what does that mean? It means, my friends, that no matter which sermon we preach, we can bring that sermon, we can resolve the problem that might be raised in that sermon in Christ. So, for instance, when the pastor is preaching on sin, 
Perhaps he's preaching on a particularly convicting passage of Scripture. And when he preaches on sin and when we feel our conviction, how is that problem resolved? It's resolved at the cross of Christ, where we find forgiveness of that sin. When the pastor preaches the law, right? When he preaches the Ten Commandments or any of the Ten Commandments or any of the imperatives, right? The commands that we find in the Old or the New Testament. We, we try not at any rate to simply preach that command and to let it drop. But we bring that sermon also to an end in Christ in a variety of ways. The first way I, I just mentioned, right? That the law convicts us of sin and we find forgiveness in Christ. But we find also in Christ, my friends, the perfect example of obedience. When we think of telling the truth, when we think of, of honoring our father and our mother, all these different commandments can find an example in the life of Christ that we can use, that Christ is our perfect example. When we preach about hell, we better, if we preach about hell, we better bring Christ into such a sermon, otherwise we would end in despair. But Christ rescues us from hell. When we preach about heaven, what is the glory of heaven? Christ is there. When we preach about the blessings of salvation, generally justification and adoption and reconciliation and glorification, all these things, right? All the blessings of salvation come to us only as we are in union with Christ. Again, that sermon might not have Christ as its topic, right? There might be a sermon on, on adoption, right? Or a sermon on uh, so, uh, some blessing of salvation that we receive, assurance of salvation. But you can be sure that one way or another, that sermon's going to bring us to the feet of Christ. All the blessings of salvation come to us only as we are in union with Christ. When the pastor preaches to weak and doubting saints, when the pastor preaches to doubting Thomas, there are doubting Thomases in every congregation. Christ is the rock that we stand on. Christ is the one that says, don't be unbelieving, but believing, as we saw last week. You know, there was an old expression in the, in the ancient world, all roads lead to Rome. Well, in the preaching of the gospel, my friends, it is our hope that all the roads, whether you're preaching a sermon on anger, or whether you're preaching a sermon on adoption, or whether you're preaching at a wedding, maybe you're marrying a couple, whether you're preaching at a funeral, mourning the loss of a brother or sister in the congregation, all the roads, all the preaching finally finds its resolution, finds its end point in Christ. That's what we mean by Christ-centered preaching. Well, then we come to the sacraments, because the sacraments also are intended to focus our faith on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now, the first thing I want to point out here, my friends, is that it's both sacraments. Many of us tend to think about the Lord's Supper as fixing our attention on Jesus. And certainly that's the case, but the catechism here is going to teach that both sacraments are intended to focus our faith on Christ. I think that's very easy to see with the Lord's Supper, but let's think first about baptism. And you know, my friends, that there's an expression in Scripture that is repeated by the Apostle Paul at least three times here that I've given you, baptized into Christ. You see, the Apostle Paul, he thinks often of baptism as the baptism of the Spirit, the cleansing that comes when we are baptized with the Holy Spirit of God. And when that kind of cleansing 
takes place in our life, then we are ready, we are prepared to be united to Christ. And all of that is behind the Apostle's expression, baptized into Christ. 1 Corinthians 12 is the first text I've given you there. For by, I would rather read for with one spirit, or for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. That is the body of Christ. Whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. Then Romans 6, verse 3, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, there it is again, and Galatians 3, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Do you see, my friends, the teaching of the Catechism reflected in these scriptures? That baptism, too, is meant to focus our faith on the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I hope you can see that tonight. That that is a biblical teaching. In fact, the Apostle Paul isn't even thinking here so much of baptism with water. That really is not a concept that is so much in the, in the Apostle's mind. He's very full of this idea of the baptism with the Spirit. But certainly, baptism with water is, is a picture, right, of, of this cleansing that we have by the Spirit of God. The one is the reality, and the other is the picture. So this sacrament of baptism, too, we must always think of the sacrament of baptism as also fixing, foc fixing our focus on the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ. As our catechism says so beautifully, our entire salvation rests on Christ's one sacrifice for us on the cross. So that's baptism. But now we come to the Lord's Supper. That brings me then to our text here in Luke chapter 22. I've put on the outline here, dining with Christ. Let's look at Luke 22. And I begin the uh, explanation here in verse 15, where Jesus expresses this desire. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So first, let's understand the setting here. Jesus has sat down with his disciples to celebrate the Passover. The Passover lamb has been killed. It's been roasted. The bitter herbs are there. The unleavened bread is there. And now the, Jesus, he sits down with his disciples at this Passover feast. By the way, already we can see the Christ-centered character of the Passover. Because Paul will teach us in another place that Christ is our Passover lamb. So here at the Passover, Jesus sits down with his disciples. And he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And the question naturally arises in our minds, why did Jesus earnestly desire to eat this Passover? What was so special about this one? Well, the answer is given to us in verse 16. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it, that is, eat the Passover, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, unfortunately, the answer that we're given there still leaves us a little puzzled. What, what is it that, why is it that Jesus had such an earnest desire? Verse 16 seems to imply that Jesus has, has this sense that he's never again going to partake of the Passover again. Until a certain time, that is, until it is fulfilled in the future in the kingdom of God. That would seem to imply on the last day when Jesus comes again as the king of heaven and earth and he calls all people to judgment 
that at that time he's going to invite his people to come and to sit at a feast with him. And he's going to give them a place there. And he's going to give them uh, that a happy experience of celebrating uh, that feast with him. But then why such an earnest desire? Well, again, if we, if we read closely there in verse 15, Jesus says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. And I think that might hold the key, my friends, with you. I think that holds the key to our understanding of why Jesus had such an earnest desire to eat this Passover, because he was never again going to celebrate the Passover on earth with his disciples again. And you know the deep love and attachment that Jesus had for his disciples. And he says, never again are we going to celebrate the Passover again on earth. And because of that, Jesus has this earnest desire to do it. Now that earnest desire, I think, would be a combination of joy right, because he earnestly desires to do it, because now he can be with his beloved disciples. But there's also a mixture of sorrow there. I think in that, in that desire that, the, uh, that Jesus has, there's a mixture of both joy and sorrow. Joy that he can be with his disciples, sorrow that it's the last time. That's Jesus' desire. But now we see here also Jesus' transition. Jesus' transition. Let's continue to read. Verse 15 is the earnest desire. Verse 16 gives us the explanation for that desire. But then verse 17, and when he had taken a cup. Now don't think here of the Lord's Supper cup. This would have been one of the cups of the Passover. In the course of the Passover celebration, there were four cups that were partaken of. It's not clear exactly which cup this one was, but at some point, probably near the close of their Passover celebration, Jesus takes one of those cups and he does what everybody expected. Right? This is what they had done many times before. Uh, and when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. Again, whatever cup that might have been in the Passover celebration, Jesus now takes it and in keeping with the Passover, he passes that cup around. All the disciples knew this. They'd been anticipating it. This was entirely in keeping with what the Passover was. Jesus repeats again what he already said in verse 16. Verse 18, For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. The fruit of the vine there being those Passover cups. That was a common expression in Jewish culture. The fruit of the vine is referring to those cups because they would have had wine in them and they were passed around at the Jewish Passover celebration. Now, it, it's not so apparent in the, in the flow of the text here, but now in verse 19, there is a dramatic shift. This is completely unexpected from the disciples. Look at verse 19. And when he had taken some bread. Now, this is completely out of order. This is not the Passover anymore. There was nothing in the Passover about taking bread and breaking it. This is now something different. Jesus is transitioning out of the old Passover and into something new, into a celebration of something new, something different. I can imagine, again, we're not told, but if I had to speculate that the disciples at this point said, Jesus, what are you doing now? Wait, why are you taking bread? Again, whether they actually expressed it or whether they just had looks of surprise on their face, but in verse 19, Jesus takes that bread 
This is now a surprise. This is different. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying. And now this is, this is what, what we're glad to read, is that Jesus is now going to explain. What is this? Jesus, why are you taking this unleavened bread that was there? Why are you now breaking that and handing that out to us? What's that got to do with the Passover? And now Jesus says, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, my friends, in the Passover, they were always looking forward. They had the Passover lamb. They had the, the, uh, the unleavened bread, the bitter herbs. Now, of course, certainly they were looking backward, right, to their deliverance from Egypt. But by and large, the Passover was a looking forward to another Passover lamb. At least it was meant to. Whether the, the, peop the people who celebrated it understood that or not is another thing. But that it was meant to look forward to that Passover lamb. And now Jesus says, we're done looking forward. Because now I'm here. And I'm going to die. And it's only days away. The Passover slides off into history. And it comes to an end with the old dispensation. The old covenant, the old Mosaic ritual is now through. And now I transition into something new. And now we're not going to look forward, but we're going to do this in remembrance. We're going to look back in remembrance of me. Now our catechism has said that both sacraments are intended to focus our faith on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And we see that now so clearly and so explicitly, don't we? This is my body, which is given for you. Right? That's the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, which was only days away. Do this in remembrance of me. In other words, now something new is beginning, and you are to continue to repeat this throughout the experience and the life of the church, and you're going to do it in remembrance of me. So that is Jesus' exhortation. That is his teaching on what this all means. We know that later on when Paul is writing to the, letter, uh, to the church in Corinth, he says in the same way Jesus took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So you, you see again the repetitive nature of this new thing that Jesus is establishing. The Passover is done. Now there will be a repeated celebration of the Lord's Supper. And that is going to involve, because Jesus gives the example of it here, my body broken, bread broken, broken as a remembrance of my body being broken. And in the same way he takes the cup, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. There you see the newness. Now there is something new. And that, of course, my friends, has come down to us as the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, the Eucharist, all these different names uh, for the same thing. And it's a looking back and celebrating what Christ has done on our behalf. And this is where it begins. And this is where we expect, my friends, to find the teaching of what it means for us. And this is the basis, then, for our catechism telling us that both these sacraments are intended to focus our faith on the one sacrifice of Christ. Again, I trust 
that you see the scriptural basis now for that catechism teaching. My first application is about celebrating Passover. There's an increasing uh, movement in the Christian church to celebrate Passover. You find this especially prevalent among Messianic Jews, Jews who have come to believe in Christ, and they celebrate the Passover. And what are we to think of that? First of all, congregation, I put that text on your outline there from Colossians 2, because it is very clear that Paul had a deep love and tolerance for Jewish sensitivities. And for Jewish people who wanted to continue practicing and celebrating Passover, he allowed that. Colossians 2, 16 and 17, Therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, or a Sabbath day. Paul says, yes, these things are a mere shadow of what is to come. The substance belongs to Christ. But for Jewish Christians who felt that they they were somehow blessed or helped along in their walk with the Lord by continuing to celebrate Passover, again, still using as in a Christ-centered way, Paul tolerated that. My friends, I do say, though, that for Gentile Christians, and for those of us, which I believe is all of us, who do not have any such connection to the old dispensation and the celebration of the Passover, we should not celebrate the Passover today. The reason is simple. Because Jesus transitioned us out of the Passover and into a new meal that he would have us to celebrate. And when we celebrate the Passover, there's always the danger that we begin to give the impression, I know we don't believe that ourselves, the Messianic Jews certainly don't believe it, but we begin to, we, we begin to pull ourselves back into that old dispensation, looking forward to Christ and even confessing that Christ has not yet come. What would you think, congregation, if I said, you know, next Sunday I will bring an ox to church and we will sacrifice it on an altar uh, out in the back of the church, right? Now, besides the the bizarre character of that, right? Although it's it's not bizarre at all, right? That's just a sacrifice in the Jewish tradition that was as common as as routine as, as getting up in the morning, right? But by doing that, I'm confessing that Christ has not yet come, that the Messiah has not yet come and given his life as a sacrifice. You understand that? And that's why we don't celebrate. We don't, we don't have sacrifices. right? We don't confess today that circumcision, even though it's often practiced yet, it has no religious significance whatsoever. Nobody thinks so. And if you did think so, that would be a problem. And in the same way that my counsel as pastor to you is that you should not celebrate the Passover. I hesitate to say that it would be sinful, but it could very well become sinful because you're confessing, or at least you're, you're, you're giving the, the uh, inclination or the, uh, the impression that we're still looking for the coming of Christ to come as our Passover lamb. And in that regard, I cannot uh, recommend the celebration of Passover. So I think we should reject that, that, uh, that idea that Christians should celebrate the Passover. I move then to my second point of application, my friends, which is what we began already with last week when we talked about doubting Thomas, that the celebration of the sacrament is given us for the week. It is giving us, it is given specifically to strengthen our faith. We talked considerably about that last week. This week, my friends, I want to point out to you 
that what is the way our faith is strengthened. If we are weak, trembling Christian, and maybe we're not a weak, doubting Christian as Thomas was, but there is only one faith. There is only one way, my friends, to have our faith strengthened, and that is through a union with Christ and through a renewed appreciation of and celebration of that union with Christ. If we do not have Christ, my friends, we do not have strength. And that is what the Lord's Supper will teach us today. And that's why it's so important to know the purpose for which God has given us these sacraments. Because as soon as we know the purpose for which God gave us the sacrament, then we can begin to use that sacrament for the purpose for which God gave it to us. Once we know the purpose of it, now it behooves us as Christians to use it for that purpose. And so, my friends, I I call you as Christians today to use these sacraments, baptism when we have it, and the Lord's Supper on a regular basis, to find strength for your faith, to have your faith confirmed by having it focused, perhaps refocused, my friends. Is that a possibility also this morning, this evening? That we become distracted. But the sacrament will refocus our faith upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Him we find strength. My friends, I want to preach to you tonight the sufficiency of Christ for your every need. The sufficiency of Christ for your every need. That is what is implied in the Lord's Supper and in baptism, and that is why God has given it to His church. The entirety, says the Catechism, of our salvation rests upon the one sacrifice of Christ. I read a story in a book this week, and it went like this. There was a man, he wasn't real well-to-do, and he wanted, in the worst way, to go on a cruise. He wanted to go on a cruise. He had never experienced it. He knew it was very expensive, so he began to save. He saved and he saved, and suddenly, uh, or one day, a, a thought came to his mind, you know, if I save my money and just use my money to buy the ticket, I can go on this cruise uh, and I'll bring my own food. When I go on that cruise, I'll pack peanut butter and, and sandwiches and I'll just eat my own food, and that way I don't have to buy all that expensive food on the cruise ship. Uh, and I can save myself that cost, and I can realize my dream of going on a cruise. You follow me? Here's this young man. He wants to go on this cruise. Finally, the day arrives. He's got the money. He buys the ticket. And with great joy, he enters. He, 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 he uh, gets on the cruise ship, right? And the cruise ship pulls away from the dock, and he settles back in his chair. You see the smile on his face, right? He's, he's so pleased. He Finally, he's realizing his dream. Now, of course, when lunchtime rolls around and suppertime rolls around, he's just got his peanut butter sandwiches and he eats those. And, but he's happy. He's happy. He's on the cruise. But, you know, as, as the day goes by and the next day and the next day, and he sees, he sees the waiters walking by with trays of fine cheeses and wines and crackers and steaks and you name it, right, all these wonderful foods. And he just, he just looks at that food and he thinks to himself, and, you know, and finally he can't take it anymore. He's so tired of his peanut butter sandwiches and he goes to one of the waiters and he says, how can I get some of that food? And the waiter looks at him astonished. What do you mean, how can you get some of this food? Don't you have a ticket to be a, a, on this cruise? 
And the man says, well, yeah, of course I've got a ticket, but I, I didn't pay for any of that food. And the waiter says, brother, it's all included with the ticket. This, you're entitled to any food you want on this ship. It's all yours. It's all included in the price of your ticket. And here's this man every day just eating his peanut butter sandwiches and watching this glorious trays of food go by, and he misses it. My friends, again, I know it's a bit of a humorous story, but it teaches us such a profound truth that in Christ we have everything sufficient for our life and walk of faith. Everything that we need is supplied us. But what do we do? What do we do? We turn to the world. We turn to this enjoyment. We turn to this thing to find satisfaction. My friends, I would ask you to search your own hearts tonight. I can't do that for you. You know. But what is there in the world that you might be looking to for nourishment, for satisfaction, for enjoyment? Ask yourself that question, my friends, the Spirit of God asks you tonight. Because that's what happens when we have this glorious feast spread before us. And Christ comes to us, as he's already come to us in the psalm that we read tonight as well, Psalm 146. But now in the New Testament, Christ is sufficient for all our needs. The entirety of our salvation rests upon his one sacrifice. But my friends, where might you be looking tonight? Where might I, as the preacher, be looking? For satisfaction. Might I be dabbling in the mud of the world over here? Might I be looking for something here? So many people, my friends, have a missing life. They, they miss something. They, they're looking for something deeper, something more, more rich, something stronger, something more secure. And every day in the church, Christ says, I am the all-sufficient one. I satisfy every need. My dear friends, this evening, do you believe it? Do I believe it? When you look at your life, does your life reflect this fact? That Christ is the all-sufficient one? That's a deeply humbling question to ask, isn't it? I want you to look at this verse with me that I put on the, on the outline. I'm going to have to end here, congregation, but let's look at this verse. I want you to take your pencil, if you have one. And children, this is on your notes as well. See on the bottom there? I want you to take your pencil, and I want you to circle the words as I go. Paul writes to the Corinthians, and God is able to make all, there's our first word to circle, all grace abound, the second word to circle, and God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that always, there's another word, there's a third word to circle, always. Always. Having all sufficiency, another word to circle. In everything, another word to circle. You may have an abundance. And finally, the last word to circle, for every good deed. My friends, I'm sorry I wasn't able to finish everything I brought tonight, but maybe this is as good a place to finish as any. My friends, did you get the message tonight? Did I get the message tonight? God is able to make all grace abound to you. 
so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. My friends, as you search your heart tonight, let's stop dabbling around in the world. Let's stop dabbling around in the media. Let's stop dabbling around in politics. Let's stop dabbling around in this, that, or the next thing. Paul says it's all manure. You remember that verse, right? I count it all loss and dung, he says, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. What does that look like in your life? I hope that the Spirit of God, I hope that you'll pray that the Spirit of God would teach you that this week, my friends. Lord, teach me this week how to live out of the sufficiency of Christ. I imagine that looks different for every person here in whatever walk of life you have. It doesn't mean that you leave your work and that you go live on a mountaintop somewhere or that you become a priest or a monk. It means, my friends, that in our daily life, all roads lead to Christ. Because, my friends, in the end of the day, Christ-centered preaching is not that much different from Christ-centered living. In everything we do, it brings us to the feet of our Savior. Christ all-sufficient. Let's pray. Lord, we draw near to you at the close of this sermon. Lord, we really struggle to live up to our privileges. We are living not on a cruise ship with fabulous dishes of food spread before us, but we're living in the presence. We've been baptized into a union with Christ. Nothing can compare to it. And yet, Lord, we confess to our shame, to our embarrassment, that we often turn to the mud, the filth, the dung of this world. And we wallow around in that for a while. And we wonder why we miss something, why we, why we feel like our Christian walk is, is not as deep as we would like or as solid as we'd like. Lord, we confess our sin to you this evening. Please forgive us, Lord, for those times when we've denied your sufficiency, not with words, but our actions. And bring us to stand once more upon that solid rock, which is Jesus Christ. Lord, how thankful we are for the repeated times that the sacraments come back to us again and again to focus our faith upon you. Lord, write this instruction upon our eyes, upon our foreheads, upon the palms of our hands. Write it upon the gates of our house. Write it upon the steering wheels of our cars. Everywhere we go, Lord, that we would know Christ all-sufficient. Lord, please remember us then this evening. Bless our gathering as the young people afterwards. We pray, Lord, that you would bless it, and that it would be a blessing to us, and that your name would receive the glory. Give us a good week, Lord, both in church and out of church, and may your name receive the glory from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. Let's turn now on the red hymnal and close our service by singing number 202. 202. Here, O my Lord, I see thee face to face. Here would I touch and handle things unseen. Here grasp with firmer hand the eternal grace and all my weariness upon thee lean. 
we'll sing the five verses of number 202 in the red hymnal.
receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.